How's the heat in here? Is it okay? Okay, we've been we're we're kind of experimenting with things. Um, the the hallway um, is set uh, exactly the same as in here. That you could you could freeze a half a beef in there tonight in about a half hour in the hallway. Um, and so we're trying to tinker with it. Everything's computerized, which I'm so grateful for. And um, here, here's two things about our heating system here. It's very complex, three things. It's very complex, everything's computerized, and it's obsolete. <laughs> Seriously, it is 11 years old, already for any parts or whatever we have to scavenge around to find stuff and so I don't know <coughs> what's going to be how long it's going to last so anyway <coughs> I wish I, I just wish for the old days when you just go over to the wall and you turn you turn a dial and that's it so but anyway okay um, we have tonight and next Wednesday, and then we're off for two, you know, over Christmas and New Year's. Um, and so we're looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis. I do want, I, I think, been looking at this um, to extend it slightly. Maybe go into the first, 12, or first nine verses of chapter 12. Remember this. Chapters were not a part, ever a part of Scripture until about the 1400s, okay? So chapter divisions, even verse divisions are very helpful and they serve a great purpose, but they're arbitrary. And so I think 12.9 is maybe a better break because it, it gives a reason for the narrowing down of the whole genealogy uh, record to Abraham. And so I want to conclude that, and we'll do that probably tonight. And then next week, <clears throat> I think um, next week if we do just kind of review because of the fact that every single major doctrine in the entire scripture is in at least embryonic form in these first 11 chapters. So we may just review that then when we get back um, after the first of the year, um, we'll start into Christian ethics. And this is a really old book title in fact, it was clear back when I was in seminary. Um, but a Christian philosopher by the name of Francis Schaeffer, um, and then also Charles Colson had a book titled pretty similar. But How Then Should We Live is, was the title of the book. And given, given the state of our culture, the disintegration of the foundation of values, uh, how then is a Christian to live? And, you know, we, no, it's simple to say, well, if everybody's um, taking drugs, what do we do? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not talking about that. It's, 
nowadays it's do I go to my nephew's um, wedding to um, his boyfriend? That's the kind of thing. What do you do? And those are not abstract questions. They're real. And how, how do we then live in a changing world that is, I feel like we're playing catch up all the time because we're, everything's new and nuts. And so you find yourself in a tough uh, place. Anyway, um, <clears throat> let's pray and then we will um, look at a portion of chapter 11 and then go on into 12. Father in heaven, thank you for the Bible, your infallible record. Thank you, Lord, that it has stood the test of time and of every single um, attack against it that men of dark hearts could come up with. And it's still here, and they're gone. So we thank you, Lord, that you've written down in this book and given us this book your, your truth. So open our eyes and hearts as we look at it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um, in chapter 10, there's a whole bunch of genealogies all having to do with the population of the earth. And I handed out <clears throat> a map last week um, where we looked at the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and the general areas that they populated, um, not only after the flood, but specifically um, looking ahead to the Tower of Babel, when the populating of the earth after the flood that God commanded them to do, he said spread over the globe and repopulate the earth, which they didn't do, gather together, they did some, um, of course, in what we we call today, or used to call the Fertile Crescent, the whole Euphrates, Tigris, Mesopotamia um, area of the world. But they stayed in that, specifically around the Tower of Babel, in the plain of Shiner, which is Babylon, um, Iraq today. And so the Lord in addition to disobeying his plan to repopulate the earth, they were pooling their depravity, and the place was heading towards another need for another flood if they, if they didn't scatter them. Confounded their speech and scattered them everywhere, and there's general, uh, general sense of where all they went. We looked at that last week of that map um, that, I <clears throat> that I gave you. Now, in 10, you have the descendants of Shem and Ham and the three sons. Then when we get into 11, verse 10, there is, and, and there's an introduction here that will show up again in, in chapter 11. Verse 10, these are the records of the generations of Shem. Okay, that's an introduction then to a more refined and restricted 
genealogy. This is just Shem, not Ham, Japheth, and all of that spreading. So we're, we're narrowing down here, and it's part of God's whole record of laying out the choice of Abraham to, so we narrow down to Shem. That goes through, um, really goes through 26. And then verse 27, you see that phrase again. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Okay, now Shem, of course, is the fam, was the head of a family of a bunch of nations today. Terah, a Semite, a part of the family of Shem, but is just one, one man and one family here, um, which would be one clan if, you, if we wanted to use that term. Um, he was the father of Abraham, and we, we know that um, they lived in, as far as we know, there's some disagreement, and you can't help it because there are old names that are used here that were used current that today are not named the same. And we can't, it's difficult to follow. Ur of the Chaldees is one of them that you can fairly well follow. Ur is by virtually everybody believed to be Babylon. Um, at the head of the Persian Gulf. So somewhere in that area is where this man, Tira, um, family member of Shem, had three sons. Abram, now a note, it's not Abraham yet, Abram, um, and then Nahor and Haran, okay? Those were, as far as recorded, the three sons of Terah. Um, so starting there, Terah lived 70 years, became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, most people believe, once again, Abram is the youngest, but he's mentioned here because of his um, importance as first, in the same way that Shem was named first, even though the, the same chapter says he wasn't the firstborn, okay? Um, we hear a little more about Haran uh, here in a second. These are the records of the generations of Terah, became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran became the father of Lot, okay? We all remember, or we're going to remember, Lot, okay? Haran died, in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, not Sarah yet. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Izcah. Now, this is this is here in the Bible. We have to explain some of the things that went on here. Um, marriage. I was going to say something. I better be careful. Um, I hope there's no one here from Kentucky, are they? Um, <clears throat> well, when I was pastoring in Indiana, of course, everybody was, they always Kentucky jokes. Um, is, you know, are you still brother and sister after you got divorced? Um, anyway, 
that's what you got here. It appears. Nobody's real sure. Um, but Abram's wife, Sarai, the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran. Okay, so it appears that uh, Nahor married his niece. Okay? Um, and some people, but, but this is another thing that sort of doesn't matter a whole lot, but some people think Iska is another name for Sarah. Okay? In that case, you'd have Abraham and Nahor both marrying nieces, but that doesn't add up with uh, Abram's report that we have the same father but not the same mother. Okay? So that one, I don't know why there's argument over. But anyway... Um, it was common to marry, you know, like a half-sister, um, uncles, cousins. Um, and this was not, this was part, I guess, of original humanity, especially repopulating after the flood, and not the issue that we have today. Um, not only do we consider they're, they're to be immoral relations, but they're also genetically dangerous. And they aren't considered moral, um, you know, a moral breach until the law of Moses came along. And then is when God began to separate things. Says, you, don't, you don't marry this, don't marry you know, all the incest or close relative things uh, were put off bounds okay so there's both the moral issue and then there's just the same then there's just the genetic issue of um, being in inbreeding um, Europe got into an awful lot of that with the kings at the di the you know the um, dynasties the different um, kingdoms uh, marrying into, you know, so intermarrying that there were severe issues. We had a situation in Oregon when I was growing up there and then pastoring there. There was a group, and I, I just remember that the word apostolic was in the, their name, but it was about a yard long is what their name was. Um, but they were one. They were really a cloistered outfit, very cultish, very uh, closed off. No doctors, no um, you know home births, um, no uh, transfusions. I mean, they I don't know. They were really out there. Um, but it had gone on long enough that the state of Oregon got involved because there were an increasing number of uh, children born with severe um, you know disabilities even worse when I then moved eventually from Oregon was pastoring in Indiana it's heavy heavy Amish country um, and the city of Fort Wayne Indiana got involved in a similar way with it with a whole area of um, an Amish clan that um, had the same issues, only m even more severe. 
Um, <clears throat> so anyway, this always strikes us when we, you know, read these things. You think, what in the world? Um, again, it's morally, it's progressive revelation. There are things God tolerated back there. But it also, he wouldn't have tolerated it merely for the fact that it was genetically dangerous. But at that point, it wasn't yet. Okay? Now, so that's what the deal is there. <clears throat> Sarah says, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, I didn't think to have you bring those maps from last week. But it's a huge arc that they took in going from what is today the head of the Persian Gulf and following the Tigris and the Euphrates clear up into what is today far eastern Turkey and I don't know what else is up there. Some of the stands, you know. But um, anyway, they were quite north to Haran. And then it's about a 300-mile migration almost due south from Haran to get to Palestine. Um, so this, was, this had to have been a, a time-consuming, months upon months, I suppose, um, trek. Now there's a little, I think I'm, I better be careful here because I haven't looked it up recently. But remember when the um, Babylonian captivities, uh, or captives, the first group was allowed at the end of 70 years, which was how long God sent them into Babylonian captivity. Uh, and he told them that when at the start, you're going to be there 70 years, so better plant gardens, build houses, and don't, don't dream about coming back home. But after 70 years, the first group came back. Ezra was involved in those first groups that came back. And I think that was about a three-month or four-month trip from the same area. Ur or Babylon back to Jerusalem. So um, going as far north as Abram and his father Lot and everybody went, then it says they settled there. They, they lived there about five years. Um, and ne or, uh, Tira died there. And so when Tira dies, Abram, Sarai, and Lot head um, to Canaan. Nahor, apparently, at that time, never even left Ur of the Chaldees because it says, you know, that they, there's no record of him going there. However, when you get a couple hundred years down the road, or less than that, um, Isaac and Rebekah send Jacob to Haran, to his, his great uncle, Nahor, who's here, to find a wife, okay? So um, we know that somehow, at some point, Nahor, uh, Nahor also 
migrated to Haran. Now, why he stayed there and didn't go to Canaan, I don't know. Um, but one of his, he would be the grandson, grandfather of Rebekah, who married Isaac. And um, then one of his sons, Laban, was the guy that Jacob went and sojourned with, worked seven years for uh, Rachel, his wife, and then got tricked into working another seven years for Leah, um, or vice versa. But anyway, <clears throat> now, um, this is why I don't want to quit at the end of 11, because um, it's, it's not a good place to quit. We don't understand the reason why God spends all this time in several chapters covering centuries and centuries of genealogies, um, a wide net, and it narrows down to Shem, narrows down, narrows down, gets down to Abram. What's God up to? Um, why this record? Because of what he says to Abram in the first verses of 12. Tira has died, <clears throat> And so now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. I don't know whether... Well, I'll go ahead and quit there for a second. Notice here, I think there's a lot of... There's just simple physical directions he gives. But there's something spiritual and symbolic in calling Abram to leave his country and his relatives and even his immediate family. This is, especially in Abram's case, because of God's purpose for him. This is similar to um, loving God and obeying God and his directions beyond love of family and so forth. Now, there's nothing here about denigrating family or counting them um, less at all. But there is, there is, and Jesus, of course, didn't mean the language Jesus used in the New Testament when he used the word hate. If you don't hate your mother and your father, we all know that that simply means love less. If you don't love me more than your mother and your father, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus also reminded uh, us, he said, a man's enemies often are those of his own household. So there's sometimes reason that it is beneficial to be on your own. Um, the pattern we've seen from Genesis 1 till now is one of the collective contribution to idolatry and to debauchery and to general depravity growing worse and worse. That's a pattern. Um, and there are times when it is best, even in good homes, to 
do what God said even before sin came into the world. He said to, to Adam, a man shall leave his mother and his father, cling to his wife. They too shall become one flesh. There's something, um, you know, if you're still, I'll probably get in trouble, so I better be careful here. But, but in general situations, you need to establish your own household. You know, if you're still living next door, um, you know, to your mom and dad. And it was kind of like when I was in college. Now, we were dirt poor, and we lived in um, the same town my parents did. Liz and I got married. We were, you know, um, well, we did all of our laundry over, over at mom's house because, you know, we couldn't even, um, we had a Volkswagen to trade in pop bottles to get gas for it, you know. Um, but at any rate, there's that normal thing. But it's right and good to establish your own household, even your own traditions. Um, there, we, we didn't have to face some of the decisions a lot of people make where um, you've got pressure to be at grandma's house, you know, every third Wednesday. If you don't, you're, you know, um, because my parents were in Indiana and Liz's parents were in Stockton, California. And when I got out of college, we went to Portland for, to seminary. Well, it was 600 miles down to her folks, and it was 2,000, 2,500 to, the, to my folks. And it was good. Not, and we loved both of our families. No in-law problems, none. But I realized that, you know, for piddly decisions um you know do i <clears throat> what do, we do you know volkswagen's ready to die you know what should we do you know what should we buy what you know whatever what are we doing well we're calling our calling my dad calling our parents we needed to get hundreds of miles away so we talked to each other and we prayed about stuff and we did what we wanted to do Okay, I think is healthy then. Um, that's one of the reasons, but not the main one, that God told Abram, get away. I have something I want to make you into that I can't do as easily and as fully if you remain w with what, as far as we know, was even Abram's father, uh, idolaters. Ur, by the way, Ur of the Chaldees, it come, the word for Ur, many say, is fire. And it represents fire worshipers, which was a major god in the Babylonian area. Get away so you can get clear from all that. No longer be infected with it. Now, on, other hand, on the other hand, there are times when God calls you um, I grew up constantly in a, in a parsonage. I grew up with, it just seems like all the time. We had missionaries coming through. And they would stay and they'd speak at our church, you know, whatever else. And my, my bedroom was the guest room. So I was always thrown out because somebody from Bolivia, you know, missionaries to Bolivia were coming. But I loved it. Um, I mean, they'd bring bows and arrows and and 
I mean, you know, knives and clubs and stuff that they'd brought back with them from the mission field. Um, I still remember my, um, I was given an arrow, a um, couple arrows and just an incredibly stiff bow um, from missionaries from Africa. And they gave me the arrow. He didn't give me the bow, but he gave me the arrow. And I don't remember how old I was. I couldn't have been. I was five or six. But I figured out that if you did, you know, if you put the arrow in between your hands and you went like that, it made a little drill, uh, kind of a little drill on the um, top of the foot of the bed of my parents' <laughs> um, bedroom furniture. They didn't like that very well. <clears throat> um, and in fact, I was in the act of making my third or fourth little hole doing that when I got caught. Um, anyway, but all of those people that I met left their families. I mean their relatives. You can't back then, it's a bit different today. Of course, there's much better travel. Um, but you were on the mission field for four years and you're home for one year. That was considered a term. A term was five years. And so what you did is you go to 500 million churches and try to get people. Back then it was $10 a month. You got to get enough people to give, uh, take a share in your ministry for $10 a month. And you got to go to church after church. So you travel for the whole year you're home on called deputation, where you raise your funds and then you go back for another, another four years. Um, and they didn't see aging parents on the farm in North Dakota for four years. Sometimes their parents, loved ones, would suddenly die and they're, they're in Bolivia. Um, I grew up with that concept. Um, and it was, the same, it was the same in our family. My mom had, there were six siblings, they were all farmers back in central Indiana. Um, we up and moved to Oregon, which um, I don't remember it, I was one year old. Um, but it was in, I think, 51, 1951, um, that my parents moved to Portland. Um, and with a straight face, and I didn't, have, I didn't have dumb relatives, but with a straight face, they were people who had never got out of the county, literally. Um, maybe once in a while they did, but mostly you lived in your little village and you'd, you carried your wheat and your corn and your soybeans to the grain elevator and a wagon and a tractor and you didn't go anywhere. They were straight-faced, dead serious, worried about Indian trouble out in Oregon. Ah, oh, yeah, you know, um, concerned that it might be kind of dangerous, you know. Um, but I never, uh, uh, and now we can start, if, you know, violins and stuff and get the Kleenex out. Um, I've never had a family Christmas with the whole family, my relatives, ever. Ever. In the ministry, you're tied up on Christmas, okay? And I have to say this, and I've dealt with a lot of pastors and a lot of, you know, as a superintendent, get over it. 
go a week later for Christmas, you'll survive. But I've known people, I've superintended pastors who ended up out of the ministry because they didn't, they didn't want to be more than, they wanted to be able to see the lightning rods on grandma's farmhouse. They didn't want to move far away because my family. <laughs> Jesus died for me. You know what I mean? And if he says, listen, I want you to go pastor here. I want you to be a missionary in Bolivia. For my sake, you do it. And you survive fine. And God's good to give you opportunities to gather with one another. But you that's part of what Jesus was doing here. And I'll say Jesus for a reason. With Abram, you, I have a mission for you bigger than you know. And it can't be done if you're still part of this idolatrous clan with uh, all kinds of different religions. Leave. And go into this land. Now, so, reflecting back, Stephen in the New Testament, rehearsed all this in Acts 7, before he was stoned to death. He went through all of this. And he said, Abraham went out not knowing whither he went. <laughs> um, most of the time, if we move, we've, we know where we're moving to. Or you have a job there. <laughs> Literally, God said, I want you to leave and go to the land I will show you. So it means he didn't even he didn't even know where he was going. He just said, okay. So they head out. But all that he asked him to lay aside, leave your country, your relatives, your father's house, to the land I'll show you. Here's the promise. Here's the other side of it. Here's what God said, I will add to you against what you think may think you're losing. I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so you shall be a blessing. So not only would he receive blessing, but he would be a channel for God to bless others. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That verse, second half of verse 3, is that is the pinnacle verse. That's in you. Now, did he know it immediately? I don't believe so. But that means Jesus will come through you. I'm going to make you a nation, and through that nation, Jesus will come, and all the families in the whole earth will be blessed. So there is a prophecy and the covenant with Abram that I'm going to send the Messiah through your family, and you will be, as a nation, as a people, the Jews, you will be the vehicle, and here's what God meant to do, the vehicle to bring the Son of God into a human body in this world. He meant then that the Jewish nation would become a kingdom of priests and prophets who would preach the gospel of Jesus. 
largely they refused it. And so the church ended up after a generation, um, after the resurrection and so forth, within a one full generation, it was 90% a Gentile church. It ceased to be Jewish. Um, that was really not God's plan. They were to be those, as he said, he gave them the word of God. They were to spread it, but they reneged on it. Now, um, the only thing I would mention, too, is looking back from the New Testament, when, um, well, let me, let's, let's keep reading, then we'll look at Hebrews for a second. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. That means maidservants, manservants, so forth. So they had, he had been enriched um, significantly. And <clears throat> they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land. Now this is a description from north to south. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. Now Canaanites, even though they were bitter enemies um, to the Jews, and they were pushed out by the Jews 450 years later, or nearly 500 years later, when Joshua led the people of Israel into Canaan, the Canaanites were Shemites, or Semites. Um, but at any rate, so they lived in the land. Abram passed through the land as far as that site. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. Notice, not to Abram. I'm not going to give it to you, but I'm going to give it to your descendants. Well, remember this. He didn't have any descendants, and he's 75. And Sarah, Sarai, then, is 65. Okay? So already, he's, he's in a faith test. Okay? Now, I'll give this land to them. So he, that's Abram, built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel, pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar of the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. Negev is just the south, down where Beersheba and southern Judah um, uh, are. Now, in these two verses, 7 and 8, the word here, built an altar of the Lord, called it after the name of the Lord, and in 7, the same thing, he built an altar, to the Lord who appeared to him. The word here, there's Jehovah, who is Christ. This is a name for the Almighty One who came to live among them and us. So, how much and when Abram who became Abraham, um, let's see, Abram means exalted father, which is kind of odd because he wasn't a father. 
But Abraham is father of many nations. Um, and God changed his name before he had um, Isaac. Sarai, and I can't even, I, anybody remember what that is? Sarah, what is it? Tom, you're nodding your head. What is it? Do you know what? Sarah is, is, is it mother of nations? Yeah, is Sarah. Can't remember what Sarai is. But anyway, um, that didn't occur until, even though Ishmael had been born, um, not, bef- not until uh, before Isaac was born. Um, <clears throat> now, notice some of the places that we do recognize. Um, Bethel. Give me something that you... Um, What's Bethel connected with? Pardon me? The 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 tabernacle, you know, the portable church prior to the temple was at Bethel. It was also a place called Shiloh, um, but Bethel was a center of worship, and the tabernacle was pitched there early on when the Jews entered um, the promised land. But way, way, way before that, that is where Jacob, fleeing Esau, um, was the primary reason he left, but the guy under the guise of going north to Haran to get a wife. That was after he had tricked Esau and stole his birthright and all that stuff. Yeah, it's, it, Bethel means house of God. Um, and so likely, remember, El or Elohim is a generic term for God. Um, it could have, previous to Abram's entrance, um, been named that in a generic sense. But personally, I don't think so. I think that... Um, Remember, when Jacob fled and he slept that night, uh, at, he, he slept and camped all by himself, which you just didn't do because you, you had to make it to a city, village, something hopefully with walls or someplace somebody take in because of bandits. So for him to be out alone at night in a strange place he didn't know was unheard of. But he made his set, he used a stone for a pillow, it says, and he went to sleep. That's where he had the dream of the angels ascending and descending, um, and God appeared to him and spoke to him. Um, And he woke up in the morning. This was when Jacob, this is when the Bible treats this encounter with God as Jacob's coming to to know God. And he woke up in the morning, and he said those famous words, um, God is in this place, and I didn't know it. That's true for every one of us before we know God. God's here. God's God's that voice that keeps talking to me. God's that still, small voice that makes me feel guilty. That's God. God's here, and I never even knew it. 
And he goes further and he says, this is the gate of heaven. So what did he do? He gets up in the morning. He consecrates the place, poured oil on it, and basically made it a sacred place. And he treated it that way the rest of his life. And he renamed it. Its name before was Luz. Anybody know what, what Luz? It's nut or all almond orchard. The place of <laughs> the place of nuts. Okay? But no longer. Because he said, I've seen God. This is the house of God. And so I'm renaming it. It's no longer Luz. It's Bethel, house of God. Um, he went from there on to Haran, a different person. Now, back to Abram. Um, and I was wondering, at what point, how much did he recognize, how early did he recognize who God really was? These two times God appears to him early as he went into Canaan. And both places he built an altar. And at some point, though, he had a deeper knowledge than we may see here. Because in John 5, Jesus said to the Pharisees, Abraham saw my day and was glad. So the eye of faith, Abraham knew a lot. This Jehovah that he built an altar to, somehow he recognized, and I'm sure it was through direct revelation to him, that he was the, he was the one that would come through his line and be the Messiah. At that word that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, I saw, Abram saw my day and was glad. Um, they, of course, tore into him and said, you're not even 50 years old. And how can you say that Abraham saw you? And then you have Jesus' final answer. Before Abraham was, I am that point it says they took up stones to stone him because he made himself to be God so they knew what he was saying and it wasn't his time yet and it says he just walked out of their midst um, but Abram then God revealed much to him enough that he knew that he was involved. The reason for all this move and the reason for this separation and the promises that he gave him had to do with way down the road, the Messiah. And then in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11 talks about um, Abraham and even when he entered the promised land, when he entered Canaan, knowing that he himself wasn't going to own it but your descendants will. Somehow then, in a figurative sense, Abraham recognized this is but a foreshadow, this new land that he said, I'm going to give to you and your descendants. 
this is but a type of heaven because Hebrews 11 says that Abraham sought a city, a dwelling place, whose builder and maker was God. So Abram's, even the gift of this land, he recognized this is just a type of the, the true promised land, which is in heaven. So the New Testament sheds an awful lot of light on this very event and, of course, all of Abram's life. He's always used as the example, the father of the faithful, um, that he inherited all these things by faith, not through Mosaic law and so forth. <clears throat> but um, much then that was conveyed to Abram. And we're going to, well, we aren't, but if whenever you read this whole, the whole book of Genesis, um, shortly, well, right after verse 9, you have the situation where he continued on south um, and then went over, um, kept going and went into Egypt. And when he goes into Egypt, Pharaoh uh, sees Sarah as a beautiful woman, and she's at least 65 then, okay? Um, and <clears throat> they had agreed, Abraham told Sarah, because you are so beautiful, um, we're traveling in unfamiliar territory and in strange countries and among strange cultures. I fear that they will somebody will kill me and take you because you're so beautiful. And so they agreed that we will say, we're brother, you know, this is my sister, which was partial truth, okay? Half-sister. Um, now, there are a lot of people who, <clears throat> um, even one of, the, one of the Bible versions um, that... I was looking at today. One of, I got a bunch of Bibles, but can't even. I mean, it was my NIV or whatever. But looking at it, it said something about. I, now I can't remember, but it was a it was a derogatory remark about Abram. It was kind of like Abraham's, you know, deceit, deceitfulness, or I don't know what it was. But the point is this. Um, I don't know what that was all about. But God didn't express any anger about it at all. So I ain't. I think that's a pretty good rule. There are people who, there are people who pick a Job of all things. Listen, God said to the devil, have you seen this guy? He loves me and he hates evil. If God doesn't have an issue with this, I don't know what went on, but I'm not going to cook up an issue. Okay. Um, because not only here, I don't know what he did to Pharaoh, but God, it says, plagued his household. He didn't do anything to Abraham. He plagued Pharaoh's household. And so Pharaoh tries to figure out what's the reason for it, and he discovers it, and, you know, that was the end of it. Abimelech, um, a Philistine, later on, same thing. And 
that guy, God appeared. I I love the I love the wording. That guy had a dream the night he took Sarah home with him, but she was kept separate. And he has a dream, and God appeared to him and says, "You're a dead man." <laughs> King James says, "Thou art but a dead man." And he's going, "What did I do?" He said, "That guy, that she's she's a wife of that man who's a prophet, and you let her go now." So he did, okay? So um, we have no authority to criticize Abraham here. Um, now, I think we'll quit. Um, <clears throat> any quick questions, thoughts, whatever, before we, before we get out? By the way, not only in these, um, this is really extra point um, questions. There were three cities mentioned when Abram first came in, Shechem, Bethel, Ai. We talked about Bethel. Anybody, now this is extra credit, anybody know about the history of Shechem? Anybody? Remember when um, Jacob came back from his um, being gone 20 years, um, he came back with his entire household, his kids, his wives, so forth, from the land of Haran when he went up there to get a wife. And the story with Laban who was a crook, Jacob, Jacob being a deceiver, uh, met his match with his um, brother-in-law to be Laban. Um, anyway, Jacob leaves there, comes back into the land um, of Canaan, and there was a, the leader, wasn't a king, but the, kind of the prince, of a city called Shechem. Um, this I can't remember, I don't know if he gave his name, but his son, uh, Hamor, I think his name was, lured Jacob's youngest daughter, um, Dinah, to come back to the city. And um, I don't know if it was consensual or not, but at any rate, um, he, in the eyes of the sons of Jacob, he raped their sitter, their their sister Dinah. Okay. Well, he either felt bad about it or whatever else, or liked her enough because he said I I to his dad, get her as my wife. Go out here to these these Jacob people um and get me, you know, I don't care what dowry I wanna I want to marry her. And that's where Levi and Simeon, and it seems like they kind of either tricked Jacob to, you know, 
go somewhere for a while. They kind of took over the negotiations and they said, I'll tell you what, we don't want any dowry, we don't want any money, no deal at all. But we can't, we're Jews, um, and all the males are circumcised, and we don't give anybody, you know, we won't give our sister to somebody that's not circumcised. And so they figured, oh, that's not a bad deal, it doesn't even cost any money. So they all agreed to be circumcised, and then they waited till they, it says, three days later when they were sore, and it says they went up, and it's interesting too, the Bible's interesting. It says they went up, went up boldly. What kind of boldness does it take to go after people that are in a hospital bed, basically? Do you understand what I mean? But <laughs> Levi and Simeon go up, and they killed every single male in the whole place and burnt the city to the ground. Well, later got rebuilt, but that's the first place we see... Um, well, not, not the first, Abraham is there. But later, Shechem was a big deal. Ai. Now this one you got to get. That was the second city they went after, after Jericho. Yes, okay. <clears throat> Ai was the city that Joshua and the Israelites um, attacked after Jericho. And Jericho was such a smashing success. And they said, it's a little city. Let's don't, don't, don't make everybody go up there. And so they just took, uh, I think they only took 3,000 or something. Well, unknown to anybody except God. Um, Achan, in the Jericho attack, had taken some gold and silver and clothing and stuff. And it's interesting. He kept back things that God said to destroy and he also kept back things that God said to dedicate to him there the gold and the silver says that's mine and all the rest of it is to be destroyed so he sinned on both accounts and he dug dug a hole under the tent and buried it and covered it up uh, with a rug or something and God said, you know, there's, you've, you've brought sin into the camp. So they ended up stoning that whole family um, and burning them um, and raising a great big pile of rocks over them. And then they took the whole army and went to Ai and defeated it, okay? Um, so there's, there's at least the very first three villages or cities that uh, Abram encounters have a place in later history of uh, the conquest of Canaan. So anyway, okay, no, no questions, everything's clear as a bell. And we're, we're early, so. Um, all right, we'll see what we're gonna do next week, some kind of review, hope it's not boring, um, but we'll, We'll kind of cap this, take Christmas off, and then we'll figure out everything to do with the, the tangled questions we deal with nowadays, okay? Father in heaven, thank you for being with us. Thank you that we have a place to meet and the freedom to do it. And we thank you for the scripture. We've got much for which we are grateful to you. Keep us safe as we go home tonight, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay.
you are dismissed.